On the podcast this week, I talked to best-selling author Edward Rutherford. His previous novels have sold 15 million copies around the world. His new book is called China. I read it this last week, and it had been a while since I'd read a good historical novel, and this was a very good historical novel. I didn't know what to expect when I spoke with Edward. We, we talked over Zoom, which is always nerve-wracking because it adds elements I can't control, mostly the internet connection, but the connection held up really well, and I thought the conversation was excellent too. When I was researching Edward Rutherford, I, I found a couple of his older books. I realized I'd read one of them in high school, and as I was reading China and taking notes on what I thought I might ask, I thought about how cool it is that I get to do this, to read someone's novel and get to ask them about it. What I didn't realize is that I'd be the first person to interview Edward Rutherford about China. This is his first interview that he's given to promote the novel. China, the book, comes out on May 18, but you can pre-order from Amazon now. There's an affiliate link in the show notes. Here is my conversation with Edward Rutherford. Edward Rutherford is the author of eight best-selling epics, such as Sarum, Ruska, and London. His new novel, which will be released in May, is called China. The novel begins amidst the opium trade in what was then called Canton, and takes us through to the end of the 19th century and the Boxer Rebellion in Beijing. Edward Rutherford joins me over Zoom from New York. Thank you so much for joining me. My great pleasure. China, the novel, is set between 1839 and, and 1900. Why did you want to write a novel set in China? And, and what interested you about this time period? Well, first of all, I should say that my interest in China actually began when I was a child. Uh, my godfather uh, gave me a book on China when I was about, I guess, 11 or 12. It was quite tough going for a boy, but it was very, very interesting. And in my mid-teens, uh, I don't know if you've heard of a, a scholar uh, called Joseph Needham. He wrote, wrote this huge tome on science and civilization in China. He came and lectured at my school. I was absolutely fascinated. Actually, a little after that, I did start trying to learn not only some Chinese history, but even uh, practiced in the school holidays, I got a Chinese teacher to come and uh, give me some lessons. In terms, however, of getting to a novel or, or a sense of, um, you know, something one wanted to do in life, my grandfather had been in Tsarist Russia for some years. And I was very, very fascinated the way a child can be by this. Uh, and I actually did study Russian at school. And so by the time I got to my late adolescence and looking towards uh, university, I got it into my head that somehow I was going to become a world statesman, that I was going to be uh, an expert and uh, fluent in uh, Russian and Chinese. And I was then going rather like a sort of Kissinger figure to save the world. It was an adolescent idea, you understand, but it was well-intentioned. Fast forward some decades, I become a writer. I wrote this big, big novel on uh, Russia called Ruska. That was an enormous effort. I couldn't even hope to undertake quite such a thing today. And Russians who've read that book have said that I caught something of the psyche, something of the atmosphere, and so forth. Now, whether 
I will have done that with the China book. I cannot say that's for others to say. I suppose in my mind was always the idea that at some time I might do something similar for China. The thing was that um, I didn't have so much of the language or hardly any really, and um, I couldn't figure out how to do it. I normally have quite a few projects under development because they take years to sort of mature, you know? Uh, I mean, at this moment I have six projects under development. Then sickness uh, intervened. In middle age, most people lose quite a number of elderly relations, uh, and so did I. At that particular time of life, my life, I actually lost about seven, uh, but two or three were very close to me. And the trouble with that is it's not just the final illness, which can be very protracted and you're there for it, but it's also the cleaning up afterwards you know, you may have to clean up, not only deal with their estate, but clean up their house, sort all the papers they've accumulated over, you know, decades and all the rest of it. Uh, and it takes a lot out of you. And I got very, very run down and I actually developed pneumonia. And my doctor um, just told me to stop everything. And at the same time, while I had stopped everything, because I did what I was told, several of my friends, close friends, were retiring. I felt not at all good. And so I decided I would retire. My retirement present to myself was a big holiday in China, which I had never visited. I had a huge and wonderful time in China. You know, I did all the, the things, the Three Gorges, Beijing, the Wall, etc., etc., etc. I went to the Summer Palace. I went to Zhangzhou. Just near there is the place where there have been a number of huge floods, the famous man-made flood of 1938, but an equally important flood in 1887, which is largely forgotten now, and which became uh, a, a big scene in the book. And when I got back from that, I was actually, had been in another project not a China project at the time when I got sick. And I went back to that and I wasn't really up to doing it. I fiddled around with a few little short stories and stuff. And gradually over the months, as I kept recovering my health myself, the subject of China came up with friends. They said, oh, well, you were in China. You must have views about this and that. And we talked, of course, about events in China it struck me from my reading and what I'd absorbed more and more that I wanted to do a book on China and that I could see a way of making it not, <laughs> it's not a small book now, but not so humongous that I simply could not handle the material. And the natural place, if you're looking at China today, it seemed to me and still does, was to look at the 19th century uh, the century of humiliation as it began, um, the failing dynasty, the mandate of heaven being withdrawn, all and the foreign powers taking great chunks out of China. And all that, it seemed to me, had enormous relevance for what we're seeing today. There, there it is. That's how I came to attempt uh, attempt my China book. Now, whether it's successful or not, it's far, I, I don't know. I'm too close to it. But I hope it, uh, 
I hope it may be interesting and possibly useful. So I, I found that so much of your novel is the story of two civilizations that struggle to understand each other. On the Chinese side, there's this hesitancy to accept new technologies, and, and it takes some time for the Chinese characters to understand that a, a motivation for the Europeans is to expand markets, make money, and to a certain extent, expand their religion. And, and the Europeans, on the other hand, are, are frustrated by what they see as, as Chinese stubbornness. From their point of view, they wanted China to enter the modern world, uh, the modern world as, as they saw it. But they kept on making the same mistakes over and over again, using force when maybe other methods may have helped them go further. So, so to me, there's, there's a real timeliness to this novel because we see some of these themes that are still unresolved and, and have real world impacts. When you were researching and writing the novel, did you, did you have that in mind? That, that even though you're writing about historical events, that in a way it was touching on something current? I'm so glad you said all that. Um, the answer is, I, I started off with, uh, no, uh, I, I didn't start off with a sort of teaching plan, so to speak. I just had a gut feeling about the whole thing and, and saw a possible story, because after all, I am a novelist. So I've got to have something that I can make into a coherent story, which is often very difficult with history, because history is very untidy. Um, and as I went through the process myself, more and more, um, I will say, I don't want to become a commentator on present day affairs because I'm not qualified to be, and that's not what I do. But that said, it did seem to me that if I could try as a novelist to humanize the story uh, and do the, the, the show the very things that you have just described, uh, it's not that history happens by blind historical forces. It's just ordinary human beings uh, misunderstanding each other, making mistakes, uh, and so forth. And I found myself reflecting that there were parallels again and again when, for instance, the, the British are wondering what to do about the Taiping, you know, and are these guys Christian? Are they our friends or are they not reliable? Are they not our friends? Um, people are looking for good guys and bad guys. Um, and you know what? You know, you find that all through history, including the present day. Um, and so uh, a little bit of human understanding and historical reflection, I think, is is very, very important, if you see what I'm getting at. That theme of empathy, actually, is, is, is something that I wanted to ask you about as well. When I was reading China, especially the early parts that are set in Guangzhou, Macau, Hong Kong, I thought about I thought about James Clavell's Asian, Asian Saga, and, and Taipan in particular, which is a novel set in Hong Kong's early days. Uh, but, but where the British heroes in Taipan were unambiguously heroic, <laughs> in, China, in, in China you complicate the heroes. Um, there's, a, there's a pirate motif in the novel, for example. Many of the Chinese mandarins refer to the European and, and American opium traders as pirates. And on the European side, one of the characters, uh, one of the main characters, a fictional character, John Trader, he, he loses an eye and has to wear an eye patch. And, and, and when China has lost the opium wars and, and Beijing signs a, a treaty giving up Hong Kong, five ports, $21 million, that, that character reflects that it almost makes one feel guilty. <laughs> and, and later on, another character... <laughs> 
And later on, another character, a missionary, says, imagine you're Chinese. Put yourself in their place. Think of what's happened in the last 30 years. So so there is some self-reflection on the European side. Absolutely. You know, especially yeah. from yeah. And and to me that was noticeable. And, and I think it was and I think it was deliberate on your part. So so I guess you do agree with that observation. And and when you were thinking about and writing the character John Trader, I'm trying to figure out how to answer ask okay, how did you consider balancing that quality of empathy while, while still remaining true to who opium traders were and, and what they did to make their fortunes? Absolutely. This is all music to my ears. Um, so exactly. Now, the, the, the opium uh, trade was immoral. There's no question about that. But as I've already said to you, I don't do good guys and bad guys because all due respect to yourself, I don't know any. Um, I only know, you know, people like me who are um, uh, basically somewhere in between. So I asked myself the question. Okay, I need an opium. There's got to be when you when you're con- uh, putting the book together, uh, you've got to find characters who are going to illustrate, you know, the main things that are going on. And so, obviously, there's got to be an opium trader, and I called him Trader. What kind of guy is this? Why does he engage in the opium trade? Is it just unfathomable greed and beastliness? Well, maybe, but. Maybe not. So why does trader become or engage in the opium trade, which is basically smuggling through pirates and, uh, and in Chinese eyes, I mean, Chinese law, uh, uh, criminal. Um, so he falls in love. He falls in love, of course, with the wrong woman, as you will have seen. Um, but uh, he's in love. And notice how inconsistent he is. During this process, when they're not sure, the opium is all confiscated, as you well know, um, uh, by uh, Commissioner Lin. And uh, what's going to happen? Is he going to lose his fortune or is he going to make a fortune? And at one point, he goes to church and prays about it. And he asks God for a sign. And his future mother-in-law, who's quite a religious lady, remarks to her daughter, well, we shall just have to pray that the opium trade resumes. This is totally inconsistent. Uh, But it's exactly, in my judgment, how human beings are. And then we follow Trader through, and he does these things. In a sense, he's punished. It's very gently uh, suggested in the novel that perhaps... He doesn't actually get connubial bliss. I, I do it delicately. His wife is repulsed by the uh, the eye which he uh, loses in a rather un- unsightly way. And the only thing I say about it, I don't have to describe her feelings, blah, blah, blah. I just say she kept the little portrait of him before the accident on her night table. And it was the last thing she saw before she went to bed at night, uh, which of course tells you pretty much everything. And then she kind of deserts him in a way, only it's not desertion, but it is really. There you are, you've got some, I hope, real people doing bad things. And the same, you know, his counterpart, the the, the Mandarin, uh, is also struggling to try to be moral in a, a, a world which is in fact quite corrupt. The uh, the local administrations in China at that time were somewhat corrupt. 
So, you know, does he take bribes or does he not? And how does his son feel about it? And then his son discovers he's taking bribes and so on. And they have, you know, a face off about that. Again, there you go. Inconsistency, imperfect human beings. And the two, the two, Trader uh, and Chirong, they, they do briefly meet. And of course, because they can't really speak to each other and they never get to know the other's point of view, um, which was just a little, you know, vignette to sum up the whole problem, if you like, the whole human problem. At the beginning of the book, there's this sense of... I guess it's a sort of innocence on the part of the Chinese, I would say. You know, some of the characters are, are naive, not quite understanding just how far the British will go to secure their market or, or not understanding how technological superiority is such an, such an advantage. And that changes during the course of the novel. Um, one character near the end says, we've been wrong to cut ourselves off from the world. It has made us ignorant. How, how different is it? for you to write from the Chinese character's point of view than, than it is to write from the European point of view? <laughs> well, first of all, of course, I will have to leave it to others to say whether I've succeeded as an outsider. Um, and I should just add, I, I'm fortunate enough to have quite a number of um, good friends who are Chinese-American and have got to know both them quite well and their families. It's a bit like being an actor, you know, a method actor in a funny way. Um, and there's also an element of sort of musical structure in it. But one picks things up, people's thought patterns, by a sort of process of osmosis. And it's like speech patterns, which, you know, any good actor, you know, will only need, you know, half an hour with somebody to pick up their patterns of speech and thought. Um, and, and so as an author, one does that a little bit. I have an inbuilt advantage when it comes to conservatism, which is that a large number of the members of my own family uh, in the older generation are, to put it mildly, conservative. Um, so I was brought up. And of course, I have, you know, American children who find it all very strange because to them, if something is new, it's good and interesting. Whereas I was brought up to think that if anything was new, it was almost certainly bad. My parents, uh, I mean, most of my family actually, come to think of it, almost all of them uh, wouldn't have a television in the house because it was a nasty newfangled instrument. My parents, when I was about 12, finally were persuaded to have a television in the house, but they had a terrific battle. They wouldn't buy it. They would only rent it. And when they were told they had to rent it for a minimum of one month, they said, no, only two weeks <laughs> in case we don't like it. <laughs> uh, it didn't last that long. So uh, I, don't have it I don't have any difficulty in feeling totally at home with people who reject the modern world. So now, most of the novel is told in the third person, but around the middle of the book, you, you introduce a narrator, a, a really memorable character, a eunuch named Lacquer Nail, who, who is our guide to the goings-on uh, in the palace in Beijing. Why, why did you choose to introduce a narrator so far into the, into the story? Very good question, sir. Um, okay, as you probably very well know, um, the goings-on inside the Forbidden City and the Summer Palace, come to that, 
and the goings on inside the court are extremely mysterious. And, you know, it's by no means, I mean, uh, people like Julia Lovell and so forth, scholars, have been able to get quite a lot of documents. So we know quite a bit about what, let us say, the emperor is saying, you know, um, in his correspondence, that kind of thing. But the, the intimate stuff, uh, the goings on of the Dowager Empress, a lot of it comes from this mysterious character, Englishman, called Bacchus. It's written Backhouse, and they pronounced it, <laughs> pronounced it rather appropriately as Bacchus. We now know that a great deal of what he wrote was invented. It's just that we can't be quite sure how much. So there I have this enormous historical problem. I've got as a novelist and, and, and so forth, I, I, I've got to have lots of scenes set inside the court and everybody would want to know uh, about Tsushi. Uh, but how do I do that myself when I can't actually trust an awful lot of what has gone out certainly into popular uh, histories? Because uh, it's all, you know, sourced, or so much of it is sourced if you go into indexes on, you know, Backhouse and Fry. I thought, well, the only way to do it is to have a first-person narrator. Because with a first-person narrator, you can't quite be sure what their own biases are and whether they're telling the total truth. And so I see her through the eyes of him. Now, he is an interesting character. I also needed to have... Uh, a palace eunuch, if I could, as a character. There's a wonderful book, I'm sure you know, um, uh, called uh, The Last Eunuch of China, which gives a wealth of inside information about the life of the eunuchs. And I discovered there and elsewhere that there were a few eunuchs who, in fact, uh, were castrated after they had married and had children. If you're trying to write, it's the outsider is very often the best way, the way in to describing the world of the insiders, because you have contrast. So, and as you will know from the tale, he has a lot of trouble because some of the, uh, uh, the eunuchs don't like him because, you know, he's gone out and had children first and they never got the chance. Um, and he falls in love with Sushi. So that's how and why I chose him. And I have to say, um, his voice originally was based on, <laughs> on a bookseller I knew, because <laughs> you need to find a voice, an English-speaking voice. Uh, the person concerned is no longer with us. Um, and, but then it took on a loan. Um, and I must confess that I, I had a lot of fun with my character and to give the I don't want to give a spoiler alert but right at the end of the book there is a piece of Chinese history where nobody's sure what happened one particular dramatic event and so I simply have him claim for himself um, whichever obviously the reader knows is impossible because he's a fictional character uh, but it fits, you'll understand what I'm talking about. It fits the case, I think, quite nicely. I hope so. Despite living in China, I, I didn't know much about the Opium Wars, the, the Taiping Rebels, or the Boxer Rebellion before reading your novel. And, and I don't think I'm alone. Um, on, on your website, you have an interesting opinion piece on, on the ethics of historical novels. You write, 
Um, the, the writers of novels and the makers of movies need to beware. The way that we depict history will enter the general consciousness. If we misrepresent the historical record, we may be contributing more than we imagine to the way that our readers consciously or subconsciously think about the world. How did you make sure you did not misrepresent the historical record in the story you tell about China? Well, I would never make such a large claim as to say that I didn't misrepresent it, but I've tried very hard. I've tried very hard to perform a service for my readers, whoever they may be, of giving as fair an account as I can. Judge, and, and by there I have relied, as you will well understand and well have observed, on the work of a number of um, uh, modern uh, China scholars. Uh, an enormous uh, work done uh, on these um, uh, 19th century events in the last, what, 30 years, I guess. And so it's possible, I think, to derive quite a nuanced view of things if one takes, takes the trouble. Um, so I can only say in answer to that, that was my intention, absolutely. And I'm so delighted that you took the trouble to find out what you did uh, from my website. And um, I've done my best. One last question. There were a couple of sequences in the book I found uncomfortable to read, and both cases involved mutilation. Uh, you describe uh, a man uh, who we spoke about earlier, you describe him getting castrated so he can become a eunuch in the royal court, and, and you describe a young girl whose feet are bound. These scenes are evocative and beautifully written, and still, I knew both of those scenes were coming, and I, and I dreaded it. Is it... Is it as difficult to write those scenes as it was for me to read them? Was it was it different writing them than writing anything else that you wrote in the book? The way to do it is to research very carefully. Now, I will tell you, mutilation part, which has to be there because it's... Absolutely. You know, it is of historical interest and all the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> you have read the version after my editors had taken out some of the gorier bits. <laughs> oh, it was, it was, there were several bits in the book which are no longer there. And my editors were right, you know. Of course, uh, I'm not sitting here complaining about it. I'm grateful. But uh, I, I had, let's just say, I had done my homework. <laughs> it was grim. Um, the foot binding, actually, I'm glad you, you brought that up because there is one thing we haven't talked about, and that's the women in the book. Uh, and one of the central characters of the book is Mei Ling, who is uh, down in South China. She's a peasant woman. We see how opium was also her father-in-law, becomes addicted. And, you know, it was fashionable to smoke opium among the Chinese. This is something else that is just part of the, the richness of the story uh, into which I delved. Um, because it was a social thing, you know, like having a, a, a good bottle of wine. So he's proud of his expensive opium pipe and all the rest of it. And she sees her husband's family, you know, ruined. And she's got the traditional, scary Chinese mother-in-law. Uh, except that, of course, we see that scary Chinese mother-in-law has her own problems. Namely, the husband sinking into opium addiction. And mailing has to make all kinds of compromises. She adores her husband, but finally has to let him go because they need the money to California to build the railroads 
where he uh, where he dies and she loses him and that's a story in and of itself in the book but um what does she do she has a very very beautiful daughter the only way for that daughter to escape in that in those times from that situation was because she was fortunate enough to be so pretty was to get her feet bound because unless she was a manchu and although she was partly a hakka who didn't mind their feet but uh if she wants to find a rich husband which she could do then she needs some elements of education which they pour their money into such as they have and she needs to have her feet bound because otherwise they wouldn't touch her all those compromises are there and i deal in quite a, a light-handed way but it of course has to be clear with the pain of foot binding and how incredibly prevalent it was then later that same lady mei ling peasant woman has to do something else to protect her daughter which again makes her face a big moral dilemma that physicality it's not just a question to me as a writer a novelist of the the moral dilemma but the physical actuality of it what did it you know feel smell look like because that's how people were actually living these these people in these grand historical events were living in in the middle of that reality there we are that's what i do i enjoyed the book very much and i really enjoyed talking to you as well thank you so much for joining me my great pleasure my thanks to edward rutherford and thank you for listening if you like the show please rate it review it and most importantly share it with your friends if you haven't already follow me on twitter i'm at twitter.com slash Next week, I speak with Korean jazz pianist and composer Seo Jin Bae. I'll talk to you then.